Hello, everyone. You're listening to Say No to Tyranny, Say Yes to Barbecue podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in to this podcast today. Today, we have a lady by the name of Brittany Carroll. She is running for Republican candidate for Indiana representative of District 60. Brittany Carroll grew up in Hamilton County and has lived in Center Grove with her husband and three children for 14 years. She is active in the community, currently serves the youth in her church, and enjoys running marathons. Okay, I don't know if we can be friends, Brittany, if you enjoy running marathons. Carol transitioned from her law firm to that of a solo practice to better meet the needs of her children and family during the pandemic. In those preceding 20 months, Carol remarked that the collective community experiences have opened her eyes to the necessity for local and state leadership who will work to protect the rights and liberties of all Hoosiers. Once we lose ground on those hard-fought freedoms, there is no guarantee that we will get them back, she says. She is a constitutional conservative. Carol said that the time to reign in government overreach and mandates is past due. She continued to say, I will fight for your right to make decisions concerning your personal health, your ability to freely work and worship in your children's education. Carol stated, it is incumbent on us as United States citizens to defend and uphold the Constitution, including the right to bear arms and protect yourself and others. She also goes on to say, the sanctity of life is very important to Carol. She urged, it is our responsibility to protect the most vulnerable among us. Carol, thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So a couple things. One, um, I, I got a problem with your bio. Uh, it says you like to run marathons, and I want to know who in their right minds like to run marathons. Yeah, probably not very many people, but, <laughs> but probably more people could do it if they wanted to. Uh, that's probably the key, right? We can do anything we kind of if we wanted to do it. Absolutely. Um, no, that's good. My wife, she she runs uh, mini marathons, and I always give her a hard time too. That's so, a great race. The, yeah, she did the one there in Indianapolis a few years back, and uh, it was funny because I always joke with her that when they finish the, the marathon you're, you got a grandstand there and then like you want to see who you're watching finish but you got all these racers running at the same time so like me moving my head back and forth making sure i didn't mess, uh, miss her really wore me out and as she <laughs> as she's gasping for air because she just got done running 13 point whatever miles so anyhow she probably was happy to share her cookie with you <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think she punched me in the arm or something <laughs> <laughs> so uh carol just uh i gotta ask the question do you uh do you enjoy barbecue to be honest matt you are not going to appreciate this answer you're I a vegetarian. vegetarian i knew it <laughs> so all right and there's nothing wrong with that like i i get it so um have you been a vegetarian for your whole life? I have since I was nine years old. So it's it's nothing it's nothing against barbecue in general. I probably don't even know what it tastes like. I just can't get <laughs> over the fact that it used to be alive. So it's a mental hang up, and that's it. <laughs> no, I get it. I so you, since about nine years old, that's uh, that's a long time for not eating meat. So at least you're consistent. That's one thing right. that tells me. That's good. <laughs> so uh, you, did I read somewhere you were in Oregon for a while? Yes, after, my husband and I met when we were an undergrad, and we attended school in Utah, and he took a job with Eli Lilly, and they um, offered us a job out in Oregon, which is where my husband's from, and his family is still out there. He was born and raised there, and they said we could live anywhere, you know, along the I-5, Portland, or actually Seattle on down to um, Reno, and so we picked Eugene, Oregon, so that I could go to law school out there. And we were there for eight years before wow. moving our family back to where I'm from, which is Indiana. So uh, living out there, I lived out. I, in fact, I, my wife's from uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and we met out in Boulder, Colorado. And it's just a different culture out there. And yes. um, so when you were in what's going on in Oregon here for the last couple of years is just very heartbreaking to watch all the protests, the Antifa riots. Um, everything going on when you were out there, how was it 
I know you've been back for 14 years, but was it a pretty liberal um, culture and all that when you were there? Oregon's an interesting state because it really is divided um, depending on where you are in the state. The western part of the state is very liberal and they consider themselves very progressive. And the eastern part of the state is more very conservative farmers and ranchers. And the, the geography differs the same way and the politics differ the same way. And so it's very interesting depending on where you are in the state of Oregon. But the western side of the state obviously is more densely populated. So they have, you know, greater representation. Yeah. And so that's where the cities are at and all that stuff. So that makes yes. sense. Yeah, I follow a guy on Twitter, and he is constantly reporting on what's going out on out there in Oregon, and it's just unbelievable. Some, it don't even look like it's America um, anymore, honestly, and it's sad to see. Well, and they've been, you know, very liberal for a very long time, and, and that's something that they're very proud of, many of them. And when we were there, even before we had children— this was years ago and they were, you know, the ninth circuit had already ruled that you could not say the pledge of allegiance because it said God's name. And so the pledge of allegiance wasn't even something that children were stating in, in schools. And it was, it was a very different mindset even 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and, it, and it definitely has continued to kind of escalate. And it, it's really heartbreaking to see what has become of the state in many ways because there's so much beauty in that state and there's the people are so wonderful and the geography is fantastic and the it it's just an unbelievably beautiful state but the politics of those larger cities are dominating and it's unfortunate because we have family in more rural areas that are really suffering under these policies and these mandates and you bring up a great point. The reason Oregon, Portland, Oregon, those uh, places in Oregon that are suffering, it's because of politics. That's the reason why it's their it's their um, ideology and their political bent that has got them to where they're at today. And as we read your bio here, and we know that Indiana is not as liberal as Oregon. We know that Indiana is not as far gone as California. We know Indiana's so quote unquote better than Illinois. Like we get all, I get that all the time. Like, well, at least we're not that. At least we're not this. And mm -hmm. I always respond with, you know, that's not the standard. We got we to gotta compare Indiana to what the standard is. And that is the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Indiana State Constitution. And when you compare where Indiana is now, to what those documents say, we have drifted a long ways, haven't we? We absolutely have. And I think that that is that the level of frustration that, that me and, and maybe I can speak for you and so many of the Hoosiers across the state are feeling is it's really become intensified in the last two years because the government overreach at the federal level is something that has encroached upon every state. And Indiana absolutely has the makeup in the legislature to be able to withstand that and do something about that. And they just won't. You're exactly right. They have not done hardly anything over the last two years, and especially the first year and a half of, of, of the pandemic. It almost was hard to tell what side of the aisle, so to speak, Indiana leadership was even on because everything that the Democrats were doing to bring overburden mandates and law uh, and, and tyranny into Indiana and our counties, it seemed like our state legislators um, and our governor just went right along with it and had no problem with it. Is that the way you felt during that time period? Well, sure. And even now, I mean, just last week, Governor Holcomb renewed the state of emergency. We're going on two years of this. So, it, you know, it's not I give everybody in a decision-making capacity all the grace, particularly in those first few weeks, even few months of this global pandemic. I don't envy anyone who had to make those difficult decisions that affected hundreds and thousands of people. And we had not experienced a global pandemic like this before. And so there was a lot of uncertainty and there were things we didn't know. And I think that we can accept that, you know, hindsight's all, you know, 2020 and we can see what we should have, could have done differently. But two years, this, you know, you cannot say 
that we are still in a state of emergency for two years. I think about a house burning down. That is an emergency, but a house doesn't continue to burn for two years. At a certain point, we just have to accept that this is our reality and we need to move forward. And when we set aside our rights and our privileges, even in the name of public health and safety temporarily, there's no guarantee that we ever get those rights and privileges back. And in some ways, we have less rights and privileges two years out than we did even in the first month of the pandemic. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um, I was talking to some leadership there in the state house, and I don't believe they believe we are in a state of emergency anymore. And I believe they just don't want to say no to the federal money. If you get elected, are you going to be able to say no to the hundreds of millions of dollars that we're getting federally just to keep the state of emergency going? Because that's the only reason why Holcomb keeps extending it is for federal money. We have been begging our representatives to do that very thing. We have been telling them Hoosiers do not want those federal dollars. Hoosiers do not need those federal dollars. We are a conservatively fiscal state. We are operating just fine. In fact, you know, we keep being told that we're, there's a surplus and we're going to receive some kind of a, re- a refund. Why do we keep accepting these federal dollars that really just require our school age K through 12 children to be universally masked? you know, to maintain the charade of a public, you know, emergency for two years. We don't need these dollars. We don't want these dollars. And we can even see that the cost is far too high, not just in terms of our rights and liberties, but our children's mental health, their development, and never mind the inflation that we're already experiencing in the state of Indiana. So I agree with everything you're saying when it comes to that. Um, However, let me ask you this. When you get in, when you get, when you win your election, you get put into office and then you start hearing things like we've got to accept these federal dollars because if not, they're going to throw numbers at you of all these families who depend on that to eat food for kids to be taken care of. Like you're essentially throwing people out on the street and grandma's going to starve. How are you going to respond to that in a way that would reject the federal dollars, but at the same time, educate your constituents on why you're doing that to make it make sense to them. Sure. I don't honestly see um, an increased need for federal dollars as it pertains to COVID. It, at this time, most businesses are reopening. There is employment available for anyone who's looking. There is opportunity everywhere. So I don't see how we can say, oh, we're shut down, we're locked in our homes, we can't work, so we can't eat. That's just not true anymore. So I think if you just have to realize what is the purpose of these dollars, why are we accepting them, and is that purpose still relevant and in existence? And if you can't honestly say two years out that they are, then I think you just have to have an honest conversation with your constituents about there is no need for these dollars. So when you um, get elected uh, in this next election, um, in the primary, well, you got a primary heavy and then you you got the election, um, you're standing on some pretty, um, you're st- on the issues you're standing on, you're standing on a very conservative constitutional side. And it probably would not be that of the establishment, the leadership that's in the state house now. Are you prepared to take on what they're going to throw at you when it comes to, you know, they, they, they want you to be a part of it, but there's some things you just got to believe in. There's some things you got to go along with. Like what's your approach towards that now getting ready for when you get elected? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I know that there is certain levels of compromise probably at every level. I think that as long as you are still representing what your constituents want, I think that you can also make room for you don't always get everything you want every single time. That's an unreasonable approach. But I think you can absolutely 100% always advocate for what you want and what your constituents want. And I think that's the big disconnect is because I don't across the state, with the exception of maybe a few of our representatives, I don't see that advocacy from our representatives speaking out, mirroring back to the district 
this understanding of I know what's important to you. I'm fighting for you in there. I might be losing because I'm outnumbered or I might be losing on this issue because of compromise or whatever the realities are that are going on in the state house. But as long as you are putting yourself out there as a representative of your district, you know, that's the best you can do. And that's what we don't see happening. In fact, we see the opposite. We, we are the constituents reaching out saying, please advocate for us. Please do the things that are needful and important to us. And we're lucky if we get an email that's some canned response. You know, we aren't getting interaction. We're not being heard. And the things that are important to us, you know, two years later still have not happened. So would you say your constituents on the whole or the majority really wants that? Or do you think your constituents wants the the government to watch out for their safety, to make sure that they put protocols in place so everybody's safe? Like they want the government to take care of them. Where's your constituents at on this? I would say, again, with that balance of grace and the initial weeks or months, there was probably a deference towards safety in this district of, you know, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't understand COVID-19. We didn't know how it was transmissible. We didn't know, you know, who was going to be most affected by it. And there was there was some legitimate concerns. And so sure, you know, you have to take steps to, to um, you know, understand what you're dealing with initially. But I think that as we began to understand what was happening and the government still just did not let go of their reign on this issue. I think that the district, District 60, the constituents by far in a way are frustrated because they don't believe that the government needs to keep quote unquote protecting them in this regard. So here in my County, Wells County, obviously we've been in the news a lot and, and there's a lot of us that, um, fought back and and things like that during this whole process and i what just two weeks ago or not even two weeks ago last week we got a snowstorm we got eight inches of snow on the ground and the commissioners like didn't turn the county red but every county around us was red which means you have to stay in for 24 hours Mm-hmm. And our commissioner said, no, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to make sure everybody's safe. We're in contact with the first responders, but we're going to keep the roads open because that is your individual liberty to go out and drive in the snow if you want to. And we don't want to take that away from you. I can't tell you how many people wanted the, gov- wanted the commissioners to shut down our county and make that decision for them. And they were just like leaning on the government to look out for their safety. And it blew my mind. And mm-hmm. so I'm proud of the commissioners for standing up and telling the, the residents of this county, listen, you don't want the government to make these decisions for you. Don't come crying to us wanting us to make these decisions for you. You need to live free mm-hmm. with liberty, and we got to mm-hmm. live constitutionally. And mm-hmm. I was just pretty proud of the, the our local government in that situation, but I was also surprised on how quick people are just to jump to the government for their safety. And I would prior to that, I would have thought, you know, I think our county's ready to move on. And then that happened, and then you're like, I wonder if people's mindsets are just – automatically go there now from what happened over the last two years? Like, are we conditioned just to think if something goes wrong, the government's going to be there for us. They need to be there for us. And we need to get away from that kind of thinking, don't we? Yeah. And that's exactly where my mind was going when you were explaining what was happening in your County, you know, good on your local government, good on them having a backbone and reminding the people that they are autonomous and they need to be self-reliant and they need to use good judgment. So, but yeah, I think that's exactly kind of where we have started to drift collectively is this understanding and even this kind of acceptance of, well, it's scary. So the government needs to tell us, you know, what our next move is. And that is so un-American. And I think that those same individuals if they were told by the government in the same manner something that they did not want, I think that they would have a different response. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. So how we got there over the last two years, I think, is through conditioning and through narratives coming through our TV screens. And one of those ways that they have conditioned our minds is, I believe, through the mask. And I know that you are a huge critic of the schools and, and the children and that they have to wear a mask. Is that what got you to run for office primarily, primarily is how the schools were treating our children? It was that, but it was also just the inconsistent guidelines that just seemed to be arbitrary and the goalposts kept shifting and they applied to some populations and not others. And it, you know, if we accept that we're truly in a state of emergency, wouldn't all the people of all the ages be doing all the things? Because that's what was working. Well, but that's not in reality what was happening. We were obligating certain groups to do certain things and other groups, you know, the groups that were able to vote because they were of age or the groups that, you know, were able to give feedback to their government, you know, they're, they were given quote unquote privileges, you know, in regards to the state of emergency or the ways the guidelines applied to them that our children absolutely were not given. And then, you know, that encroaches on our parental rights where I'm saying, I know my child the best. I know what's in the best interest of my child. Why does the government get to come in and tell me otherwise? You know, we've been we've been charged with the care of our children since time immemorial. And why can we not apply common sense circa 2019, where if my child's (laughs) sick, I keep my child home for a few days. When my child's better, I send my child back to school. If I think that a mask works, I can put a mask on my child. If I think that multiple masks are better, I can utilize multiple masks. But why is this not my decision with my parental rights that are God given and constitutionally protected? So it was the mask, but it was also just the attitude of the lack of uniformity of these COVID guidelines statewide. Yeah, after doing research on you and just getting ready for this podcast, one thing that really popped out to me about you and, and what you've been saying is you got a very clear understanding on the rules that the four sovereignty um, governments that we are given to us by God and the rules that they're supposed to play. So you got the individual. We talked about individual responsibility. If you get in your car and go drive in a snowstorm, that is your responsibility. Individual responsibility is key in in, in living free. The second Mm -hmm. would be the family. And that's what you just got done talking about is, is the parents are the ones who make that decision. Health is in the rule of the family sphere. It's not the government's. The government can't infringe on that. None of these none of these different spheres can infringe on one another or our society starts breaking down. And then we got the church. And I noticed um, and read things on you and things you have said about that. You were not all for the governor coming in and shutting down our churches, were you? No, I and I'm I still don't think that even in in a, in a state of emergency, that they have that authority. I don't see where our constitutional rights ever get to be set aside. I don't see the founders say all these things apply unless there's an emergency. I don't see that. So I, I can't make room for in my mind when we are given the First Amendment protections and the right to assemble and the right to worship. And we are, const- you know, again, God given but constitutionally protected rights, I don't see how suddenly those rights don't apply just because something happened. Well, what you're going to be told is, is that, yeah, the Constitution says that, but there's a lot of different codes and and laws that have been built up on top of that Constitution. And primarily with that one, it's the Patriot Act that George W. Bush gave us after 9-11. And in the Patriot Act, that gave the governor the right to do what he's done. And that's why it's lawful. How do you navigate through that garbage? (laughs) Well, basically, essentially... the make that might be true there are a lot of laws on the books that we've been quote unquote getting away with a lot of this nonsense for far too long but is it right no it's not and here's why it's not right because in a state like indiana where we have a republican governor a majority in the house a majority in the senate and a supermajority 
of that Republican Party within that legislature, there is absolutely no reason why we cannot be reflecting constitutional conservative values and principles, because those are the people who elected them into those seats to do that very thing, to represent them. And where these emergency powers have been granted by the legislature to our governor, they are the same body who can remove those emergency powers. And they have not and they won't. So, yes, there are other laws on the books that this whole thing has been a shell game, right? I mean, you complain to the the school board about what's happening in schools and they say, well, our hands are tied because of what the governor's emergency powers are. And you, you know, complain to the governor and you say, hey, can you help us? Can you fix this? Well, we're in a state of emergency. You, t- you tell your legislatures, hey, can you represent us better? Oh, we can't. There's only one of me and 150 of them and I by myself can't do anything. And everybody just you know, oh, but the the health department says this, never mind who appoints the health department. You know, the health department says this, but the CDC says that we have to follow these things. So nobody is willing to just have a backbone, make a stand and do the right thing. And it's just a shell game of who's responsible for these decisions and where does fault lie in who ultimately made these decisions. So these other laws might be on the books, but there's no reason why we don't overcome these laws when we are a government of the people and the people are saying we're done with this. So I'm going to ask you to try to get into one of these incumbent minds who've been ruling like this for many years. Why do you think that so when you run for office, when a person runs for office, you would think that they think that they're a leader and they're the right person. Only one representative per district can be that representative down at the state house. So for you to, for somebody to throw their hat in the ring to run for that, you would have to think and that you're the right guy or the the right lady for the job. And I'm going I would to hope so. Right? Yeah. So then we get these representatives. And they get down to the state house, and then it turns out that they're not the right person for the job because they don't do anything to help out their constituents at all, and they just go along with party lines because it's party over principle at that point. My question is, is what would flip in somebody's mind to continue to run for re-election knowing that you're really not serving your constituents in the way that your constituents needs to be served? Have you ever thought about that? Well, I think because that's that's on us as constituents. We're not paying attention. We're not watching what's going on. We aren't seeing, you know, what bills are being put forth, what amendments are being put forth and how our representative is voting on those things. And so we are not holding those representatives accountable. And so if I can be grateful for COVID for anything, it's that it got a lot of us to start paying attention to things that we just really hadn't been watching. And that's one of that's the big one. You know, when I start looking at these voting records, I'm appalled. I'm appalled that, you know, these representatives, they kind of just straddle the fence on this issue. They try to maintain, you know, their good standing with the party within the state house, but then they have to do just enough to be able to go back and tell their constituents, see, I did this thing or I did that thing, so I'm doing what's important to you. But if you really look at the opportunities that were missed, the bills that went forward, the amendments that went forward where your representative didn't represent you, that's that's the alarming part. And I think that the representatives feel like they're doing a good job. You know, they think, well, I have to play the game. That's the only way things get done. So I'm playing the game and I'm throwing a few crumbs to my district. And so all is well. And so I think that I think that they can continue in those seats and they do for years and years and years because the people really just don't know any better or don't don't realize because, you know, most people aren't watching the legislature do their jobs. I was having lunch with the gentleman here right before we sat down to do this podcast and we were talking. And I don't know how familiar you are with my story or not, but our restaurant got shut down um, back in 2020. We complied for maybe the first two weeks of the plexiglass, the social distancing. When the mask came, 
I ordered a case of mask and you know, I didn't, I didn't really know all that much. I was hearing things. I got the mask in and in on the box, it said this mask will not, these masks will not protect you from the Corona 19 virus <laughs> right on the box. Isn't that amazing? Right and on I'm the like, box what are we that. doing? Uh, you know? And at that point I'm like, I'm not going to live by lies. Like I'm going to be honest and we're not doing this. Well, eventually it got a shut down. Um, and so I had a red pill moment and I've been following politics and I've always been on the, on the outskirts of, of, you know, um, I've always been pretty conservative and I've always thought that the Republicans really don't do that good a job and as good as job as I'd like them to, um, you know, but I, I never thought it was that bad, but at that moment, I guess I would consider it my red pill moment. Um, this guy I was talking to today at lunch, he said his moment was is when they're shutting down you, Matt. And then I turn on TV <laughs> and I see him out there rioting and burning things down. Yeah. And they're calling him peaceful protest or mostly mm -hmm. peaceful. And right. he's like, at that moment was my red pill moment. Did you oh, have a red pill moment? All of it. Everything you said, the hypocrisy <laughs> for me was so rank from the word go. I mean, you could see, oh, this is okay, but this is not. You know, the, the yeah, of course, the, the rioting and the mass protesting, you know, obviously no social distancing taking place there. But then my child's, you know, senior year of marching band is essentially canceled. Like what? My child can't beat a drum on a football field. Oh, but, you know, we still have sports happening, you know, so, yeah. we, you know, we wear we we go along and we have certain protocols and procedures till 3 p.m. And then, you know, after 3 p.m., then it doesn't matter anymore. You go into a restaurant, you have to walk in wearing a mask. But then as soon as you sit down, you can take your mask off or I mean, you know, it's like, oh, OK, so the, the inconsistency and the hypocrisy, I mean, you name it. I mean, it was it, it was hard to miss. It was just in your face. And yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, you're right. And it's really childish. And so here's what we started doing. And this is probably how immature some me and my buddies are, but we're like, okay, so we can go into a restaurant and if we sit down, we don't have to wear a mask because that's like base, like playing tag, right? Mm -hmm. When you're on yep. base, the COVID can't get you. They can't tag you on base, right? Right, so, right. Or you're like, or, or the Rona disappears <laughs> under the three feet level or something. Right. Yeah. So we'd go to restaurants and we'd open the door and it'd always say, please wait to be seated. We just blow past that sign, find an empty table and sit down. And then what are they going to do? Make us skip back up and walk out without a mask on? So <laughs> it never failed. We always got to eat if we just blow right through that sign and go sit down real quick and we were safe. So I, it, you're right. It's complete nonsense. And it's it, unfortunate. It, and it's unfortunate the way that, that certain businesses were so heavily regulated, like the food industry and other businesses. It was, you know, big box stores, the Walmarts, whatever. Totally fine. You know, you can, you know, no, none of these measures necessarily applied or were enforced and they weren't ever at risk of being shut down. And so in my district, that really made small business owners, you know, um, suffer in a way that was that was not okay. You know, how can you justify these businesses being open, but these businesses have to close? And some of them, they had to permanently close. They just couldn't weather that that period of, you know, they, they didn't have the savings sufficient to be able to float those months without income. And, and, and that is so un-American. Why, you know, if, if you are a business owner and you're choosing to operate your business and, and customers or clients feel safe enough to want to avail themselves to your services, why is that tra transaction not allowable? If you don't feel safe going to a restaurant, don't go to a restaurant. Yeah. You know, why did we have such this heavy handed regulation of you cannot operate your business? Yeah, and you know, again, it's not the governor's job. So we went through the first three spheres of government, the individual, the family, the church, and then at the end you have the civil. And the civil's job is to punish the wicked, reward the good, and that is exactly why is not happening anymore. The, pu the, the government is not punishing the wicked. The, the wicked's running free. And mm -hmm. the people who are getting harmed right now are the good, the the business, mm -hmm. you know, owners, the ones wanting to go to work but can't because they got laid off, mm -hmm. uh, the ones who want to do things right, but they're the ones who are, you know, the problem all of a sudden. Uh, the truckers in Canada, I don't know if you're following all that at all, but that oh, is yeah, amazing. 
mm-hmm. and they're doing it right. Like the, the government should be rewarding them, but they're punishing them. Look mm-hmm. at Joe Rogan. What he did was right. He he gets on different viewpoints. They have discussions just like we're having now. There is nothing wrong with that. And now he's getting punished because it goes against the narrative of the only narrative that they tell us that's the only narrative we can believe. And so, right, so go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, and that's another infringement, you know, of our constitutional rights, this free speech. Well, you're allowed to say it, but get ready for the backlash, get ready for being canceled, get ready for being silenced, um, you know, get ready to be banned on social media or, you know, you're not allowed to actually have those free expressions of thought or speech, um, you know, without a major, you know, negative consequence. So people are kind of watching what they're saying they don't want to admit and i think that our silent majority is finally uncomfortable enough to not be so silent anymore i think that they are looking for ways to have a voice and to get involved because what choice do we have you know what what we have today as americans in terms of our rights and our privileges is not what our children and our grandchildren are going to have if we don't stop this nonsense it's such a slippery slope when we accept that the government can shut down businesses or churches or regulate gatherings or tell you what your child must inject into their bodies when when we allow a government to do that even in the name of health and safety where does it stop what else do they get to tell you you can do or can't do yeah and you're exactly right and that's where we're at and that's why when i read in your bio you know it says that it's time to rein in government overreach and mandates is past due like we got to do this if we're going to go back to a a normal life and in not only that like we need to just not be happy with the way things were in 2019 if we're going to make this push and if we're going to fight for our freedom and if we're going to be constitutional conservatives we need to even go back way farther than that and it, because the government has been overstepping and overreaching now for decades and so it isn't like we're trying to get back to 2019 it's we want to go back to the constitution and our bill of rights and we want to we we want to undo a lot of things not just what the pandemic brought forth am i correct in saying that is that the way you feel absolutely absolutely i don't disagree with you at all and and i think that we've got a lot of really unnecessary and even bad law codified i yeah we we really need to clean house not just in in representatives but also in our in our law books in our legislation and go back to the basic principles. I'm not sure. Um, it's going to take a lot more Hoosiers standing up for that actually to be able to happen, in my opinion. It can't just be pockets or some saying it. I mean, there really has to be a concerted movement toward this is what's important to us. This is what we want. And I agree with you. I think getting there is going to take the action of far more than just who we put in office. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And I think that once we get people in office and first and foremost, at the end of the day, God has to do a work in people's hearts and in their minds, because if God isn't the one changing hearts and minds, we we're incapable of doing that. And so I believe that we need to have a reformation of faith for this to even get back to where we need it to be. People need to, 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 you know, repent and turn back to Christ, in my opinion, and what I believe. That'd be amazing. It would. can't imagine what what would happen, you know, what would we, what would our outcomes be if that were happening? Right. And if you look at this trucker rally, like they are fighting for freedom. They want freedom. Canadians probably have had it a little bit worse than most of us. Probably, now, as you know, California is probably close to New York and all that. But as most of us, Canadians had it worse than us as far as government tyranny coming down upon them. And what they want is freedom. But w- when they taste that freedom, what they ultimately want, and they just don't know it, is freedom in Christ. And once people start tasting and seeing that, that's when that's when I think we're going to see a big reformation or a bit in uh, a great awakening, and that's what I'm praying for. And then once that gets exposed and that becomes the narrative, 
what's being pushed down our throat today is going to be exposed on how wicked and shallow and and evil what the media and what the government's trying to do to the people and i think it's going to be light shown into darkness and that darkness is going to be seen clearly because the light's shining through it i did not mean to go down that tangent with you but um no but i agree with you because that's you had asked a question that i'm not sure we totally even flushed out a few minutes ago you know but you were saying like what are you going to do about this in in the state house you know how are you going to stand up to the way things work you know in the state house and you're going to be expected to kind of toe the line so to speak and and i think that it kind of comes back to what you just said right is right and wrong is wrong I think period end of story. Right. And so if you, if you have that mindset that is clear and that moral compass that doesn't deviate, you don't have to get into these shell games and into these, um, you know, uh, negotiations that protect your political seat or help you toward more, you know, future political aspirations or whatever. It's not about you. It's about, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong. And doing the things that are important to your constituent is the only reason why you're occupying that seat. So if even that were the focus, we would have a game changer of, you know, what of what the metrics are and in Indiana. Oh, that's good. Um, so you also have here on your, uh, on your issues, uh, on your website, I'm looking at here, you say, um, you, you talk about sanctity of life and how important that is. Uh, now you have children of your own and the, the biggest, one of the biggest reasons why you got in this race is because you, or what they're doing to the children through these mandates and what, what COVID has been doing to these children in a million different ways. And my question to you is when it comes to abortion, where, where are you exactly at on that? And what do you want to do to end it? Are you more of a incrementalist type politician who is going to, yeah, we're going to get there, but we're not going to get there one chunk. Or are you mm-hmm. one that says, I'm going to fight for life and we need to end this immediately. Where do you fall on that? Well, I think if I go back to what I previously stated, if right is right and wrong is wrong, why are we wasting time regulating it? Why are we not just ending it? And for all of those representatives currently in the state house who run on pro-life principles, and I would say that's probably the majority because how do you even say you're a Republican in Indiana if you don't say you're pro-life, right? So that's kind of a given that that's your position. And then you even go so far as to try to get endorsements from groups that bolster that position for you. And then you have opportunities to, to do exactly what you said. Hey, let's say life is at conception and everything thereafter is abortion. Why aren't we just getting that done? We have the constant, you know, we have the makeup within the legislature to do that. So who else are they beholden to? What, you know, who else are they trying to please or make happy in that decision making process? So for me, it's it's clear. I don't I don't see why anything needs to be incremental about this. So it just occurred to me while you're talking is I am talking to a lawyer right now. And that's amazing because one, every time I talk to a lawyer, it costs me a lot of money (laughs) and this isn't costing me anything. Uh, Two is I ask this question to a lot of politicians, but they're not lawyers. And, and um, so here's what we get. We get, listen, the Supreme court Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. I argue, no, it's not because law only comes through Congress and Senate legislators are the only ones who can make law. The Supreme Court can't make law. There has never been a law on the book saying abortion is legal in the United States of America. Yeah, Matt, but the Supreme Court says it is. Well, I don't care that the Supreme Court says it is. That means that gives us all the reason in the world for you as a legislator to make it illegal in Indiana, to abolish it in Indiana. They say, no, we got to follow the U.S. Constitution. As a lawyer, what's your, what, what, what say you on that? I do think that Indiana has the right to make the laws that pertain to the state of Indiana. And that's not just 
my belief, that's the Tenth Amendment, that states' rights. The United States has the rights given to them at the federal level that are specifically itemized in the Constitution, and anything thereafter is relegated to the states. So the states absolutely can come up with legislation that addresses that very issue, and they wouldn't be at odds with federal law, in my opinion. Right, but they'd be at odds with the Supreme Court. So let me rephrase this a second way. Um, let me see here. So so the Supreme Court obviously came out with the, the ruling of Roe versus Wade, and then they're saying, I've talked to, I've talked to Indiana House leadership um, about this, and they said that the 10th Amendment, uh, federal law trumps state law. And that's what they believe. So our Republican supermajority leadership and establishment at the state house right now in the house and in the Senate believe that federal law Trump state law. And you just told me the 10th amendment says the exact opposite, which one I, and I, I'm just asking this, which one is correct? And why do you think that that's where the establishment is right now at the state house in believing that? Well, I don't believe that federal law trumps state law if the federal law has not been specifically designated that power or that right. So I don't think that that's an accurate statement. That's good. And Indiana already has on the books that life begins at conception. That is that is a law that Indiana has. And so if that is a law that they already have, well, then I don't see what the purpose of coming up you know, with any regulations related there. I mean, I don't even see the purpose of trying to regulate it. They've already established the law. They've already said it. No, that's really good. And you hit it. And I hope people caught that because it's not that the Indiana state has the necessarily the authority and I would argue it should anyhow, but um, to overturn federal law. But the thing is, is there is no federal law. So therefore the 10th amendment trumps the Supreme Court decision. And the legislators can make law in Indiana that would abolish abortion, and that would be in no way violating federal law whatsoever, because there is no federal law in the books. Right. I mean, if that if it were true, what what you're representing that has been in, you know, interpreted to you, then, you know, how does Texas have a, you know, proceed forward with a heartbeat law? I mean, other states are doing this very thing that Indiana just isn't doing. Yeah, uh, that's good. I, I hope uh, people understand that because that's huge in this fight against abortion. And what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong and that we are on the wrong side of history when it comes to abortion and we need to correct it quick in my, you know, in my belief. So that's good. Um, all right. So let's see what else we want to talk about today. Anything you want that I haven't got to yet, Brittany? Well, I think that you've touched on all the, the hot buttons for me. I, and, you know, obviously the, the Republican conservative principles that, uh, you know, matter to most conservative Republicans obviously matter to me as well. But I don't think it's enough to just say I'm a Republican and so we're on the same page. I think that we have to differentiate ourselves and we have to say, look, we have got to make room for the Constitution in our thought processes and in our decision making. The Constitution absolutely matters and it has to be applied. And we cannot look at legislation through a lens that doesn't include, you know, an analysis through the Constitution. And I think that's where we're sideways in Indiana. I think that they have, you know, collectively as a, as the Republican supermajority just kind of accepted that the Constitution must be somewhat, um, you know, it's relevant at times and it's not relevant at other times. And they've somehow made sense of that in their minds. And I don't, I cannot reconcile that. I cannot reconcile how the constitution doesn't apply at all times and in all situations. And so I think that distinguishing that even among our voters is important because I think that if you really had a conversation with the voters, I think they would agree with that, but that's not what we're, that's not what we're getting right now from our representation. Yeah. And that's why I like what you put on your page is you're a constitutional conservative. 
When I hear people say they're a conservative, it means absolutely nothing to me anymore. Because mm-hmm. conservatism is a, uh, it's like Fauci and his goalpost. It keeps moving. What's conservative mm-hmm. 10 years ago is, or what's liberal 10 years ago is conservative today. And if you look at the way that the the people are governing in our state, you can see that they're really about 1994 to 2008 Democrats and the mm-hmm. way that they thought. That's the way they're, they're governing today. So conservative means nothing. It, it has no mm-hmm. backbone in itself. But when you put con, con, uh, constitutional in front of it, it kind of tells you exactly what you are and what you're about. And I appreciate that. And that's what I like to see. So when we get these mailers, when we get these flyers, these emails, if it says conservative, I usually just chuck that out because I don't even know what conservative means anymore. Mm-hmm. That's good. So I agree. I agree. Because I think that most of our representatives would qualify themselves as that. You know, I'm a conservative Republican and that makes sense for their voters because their voters identify as conservative Republicans. And so that's how they get elected. But then in reality, that's not how they're legislating. You know, that's true. And words matter, right? So their definition of conservative in the voter definition of conservative, the voters automatically just think that their conservatism is the same as their representatives. And the truth is, is that word means two different things to each one of them. And people do need to start realizing that. And words do matter. So that's why putting constitutional conservative in front of putting constitutional in front of conservative, it kind of really narrows it down and tells people what you really are. And I like that. So thank good job on that one. I think yeah, I think it's important and I think that the the majority of those who are identifying themselves as primary challengers for the first time maybe ever in their lives in this upcoming May third primary, I think that they would also probably put the word constitutional conservative you know, as kind of their tagline also, because I think that that's where we're feeling a disconnect from who we are as Hoosiers and and within where we live in our districts and the representation we're getting in Indianapolis. Yeah, one big issue we have not talked about yet is the Second Amendment. Um, You are very strong on that as well, it looks like. And we've been trying to pass constitutional carry here now for a while. Um, I think Mm -hmm. it got shot down again this year. I know the session ain't over, but I think it's dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason being is multiple. Um, It always seems to do somewhat with the Indiana State uh, Police Association or whoever is, you know, giving money to these politicians. What a... Why do you think that we can't get that Second Amendment right back that's so clear in the Constitution that that is our right to have and to bear arms? I'm just speculating here. I think there's a lot of competing interests here. I think that permitting, you know, permits and licensing is a source of revenue for the state. I think that might be one piece of it. I think that there could be a legitimate concern about, you know, the appropriateness of every and I put that in quotes, um, you know, is every is everybody who wants a firearm safe to have a firearm? You know, so there is kind of a, you know, a desire to have a vetting process, so to speak. You know, are you someone who should have a firearm? So, again, back to the, you know, our concerns about health and safety, the government should be regulating that. So I, I think that there are probably even 10 more reasons why there are some legitimate concerns about constitutional carry. But again, this goes back to the Constitution. It's already in the Constitution that the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. And it's an infringement on your right, on your constitutional right, that's already God-given and constitutionally protected, if you say, oh, but now you have to go through a vetting process, or now you have to pay a fee, or, you know, when you have when you have to pay a fee, or you go through um, background checks, or you, you know, in all of those things are infringements, right? Because you've been, you know, probationally denied your access to your right. So it's, it's silly to me <laughs> that we have, that it's so difficult to just call it what it is. We have this right already. Why do we have to keep trying to assert this right through the legislature? Yep. That's good, Brittany. Um, so if somebody wants to, 
give to your campaign? How do they do that? I'm not seeing that on your website, but I may be missing it. Oh, that's unfortunate if you're not seeing it on the website. I'm hoping it's prominently up top on the first page when you go to the website, which is um, BrittanyCarrollForIndiana.com. And there's, you know, just right on that landing page, there should be a, you know, donate or. Oh, I might be on the issues. I might be on the oh, issues yeah, yeah. page. If you click out of that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, please donate. Yeah, that's, that's what's so important. You know, it really is a David and Goliath situation for us, um, you know, primary challengers going up against incumbents. And, and, it's unfortunate, but it's it's still true. You you got to have some money to operate on to be able to get your your name out there for some name recognition and to be able to get your messaging out there. And everything does cost money. And so when you're challenging somebody who has you know a war chest built up over a decade, it you know ten dollar donations are awesome. Fifty dollar donations are even better. Right. You know. Yeah. It all counts. A hundred dollars, you can get a free shirt. Yeah, you you know it. And, you know, you're, a, you're a true patriot at 500, right? <laughs> That's right. And, and you, but you make a good point. So we we've been talking a lot here. Why are these pe- why are these politicians acting the way they're acting? It's because they know how hard campaigning is. They know how much money it takes. They know that money generally, and I'm hoping this changes, but generally wins elections. So you know what? You get the teachers union coming in saying, "Hey, put the kids in mask." Um, and if you do that, we'll, we'll donate to your campaign. We've got the NRA coming in, you know, we got the right to life organization coming in. We got all these big donors coming in lobbyists, try Eli Lilly. And I know you said your husband worked there, so forgive me for that one, but you, oh, got, no. <laughs> you got, you get, you get all these, uh, you get all these lobbyists coming in, throwing money at these, at these politicians that are in office and they're thinking, yeah, you know what? I could I could win or I could get a lot of money and that's going to make my campaigning easier. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's a reason why I'm getting back for you here. I think that's the reason why. Um, I think that's the reason why that the politicians act the way they do and they vote the way they do and they write the bills the way the way they do. And you so, are a hundred percent right. I mean that that is you you hit the nail on the head that's exactly what it comes down to if you look at who has donated to your representative and you can look it's 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 a public record on the secretary of state website it's campaign finance sorry campaignfinance.in.gov and you can look up your elected representative and you can see exactly where their money came from and that will tell you exactly who they're beholden to what you just said you know if you've got big dollars coming in for a corporation you better believe they owe that corporation the way that they vote on bills and amendments if you've got big dollars coming from special interests um, you know, you're going to vote to make your special interests happy because they're going to, in a sense, hold you accountable. They'll say, well, we gave you all this money. Where were you on that? And they're going to expect, you know, kind of an accounting of sorts. But if you don't see the representation on these donations of the, you know, the local constituents, you know, the $25 donations, the $50 donations, the $10 donations from the members of the district, you know, if you don't see that prevalently throughout the campaign finance report, well, you better believe that's not who they're beholden to, even yeah. though that's exactly who they need to be beholden to. But money talks. Yeah. And that was campaignfinance.gov. You said you can go and check that out on? Yes. Campaignfinance.in.gov. .in.gov. Okay. I'm going to... Thank you. And uh, yeah, check it out. Check who your incumbent has been getting money from. Um, and again... On your webpage here, you can chip in $25, you can do 100 you can do 500 You know, it's going to take money, and but we also need to have a good ground game as well. What is your plans, Brittany, for getting out and knocking on doors? Do you need help with that? I always will take help knocking doors. I mean, I'm aggressive about door knocking. We've been doing that. Um, we are not currently in the snow knocking doors this day, but we are, you know, weather permitting, we are out there, we're engaging with the, with the voters. And it's important because, um, you know, I'm simultaneously trying to get my name out and allowing our voters to know that they have a choice 
in this election. They they don't always have a choice, but they do this year. And also, I'm I want to know what's important to them. You know, it's not enough for me to just kind of like verbally dump what's important to me. That's not what a representative does. I'm trying to learn, engage at the doors. You know, what is important to you? Where are you at with all of this? And I'm learning a lot, and it's it's amazing. And what kind of reception are you getting? Um, overall, I would say a general just sense of frustration that they have been unrepresented and unheard and they are frustrated and some of them are so frustrated they have just even resolved i'm done with politics and you can't blame them you you know but also this is where we live this is how this works we're essentially a two-party system in you know and not engaging in it i don't find helpful right you know but i can appreciate where they're coming from and i want to say i i agree with you my level of frustration has has caused me to, you know, try to take the next step of engagement. What can I do? And I know running for office is definitely not for everybody, but everyone can figure out how they can get involved. Everyone absolutely can get to the polls on May 3rd. And that's where this election is determined at the primary. And I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, they wait for the general, but in, in these red districts, the race is already decided in the primary. Yeah, that's a good point. It really is. All right. Well, hey, Brittany, thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to ask you to stay on just the phone after I close this thing out just to touch base with you real quick, if that's all right. All right. Thank you all so right. much, Matt. Yeah, no, thank you, Brittany. Again, she's running for District 60. Go to her webpage, her Facebook page, and get involved in her campaign. Help her out. I think that she is going to be a freedom fighter for her constituents. And we thank you, Brittany, for standing up and doing something about it and being the one to say, send me, I will make things right, and I will have a backbone. So thank you for that, Brittany. And it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, Matt. Absolutely.